The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are from Booz Allen Hamilton. We have Trey Obring. Trey is a executive vice president who leads Booz Allen Hamilton's directed energy innovation team. Trey is a retired Air Force lieutenant general and a, and a former director of Missile Defense Agency. Also joining us is Scott Wells. Scott is vice president at Booz Allen Hamilton, has over 30 years experience in systems engineering and integration, complex systems, particularly for the department. Uh, Scott is currently in a firm-wide leadership role for Booz Allen Hamilton's engineering and science business line. And finally, we have Bill Nichols. Bill is uh, is a Booz Allen Hamilton principal. He leads the firm-wide position navigation and timing functional team. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. So, uh, so today we're going to be talking about positioning, navigation, and timing, and the challenges facing the department in terms of net modernizing the system, making it more resilient, uh, responding to bad actors and threats, and what that all means. And um, I'm going to start with you first, Scott. Um, Scott, so when you think about the where, where the department is going, there's a lot of talk about going modular, open systems architecture approaches, um, you know, the the, the role of the OEM versus integrators versus companies like yours who provide that technical support for program offices as they try to integrate across systems of systems. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, the challenges that are facing program offices when they start thinking about modernizing PNT and PNT, positioning, navigation, and timing? Scott? Uh, I'll start with a little bit of background uh, on the problem itself. Um, there are systems across uh, the military, defense department, commercial, that rely on positioning, navigation, and or timing in order to function properly. And if they don't have the signal, uh, they simply don't perform the way they were designed. Uh, since GPS, the global positioning system, came online over 20 years ago, it has become the primary source of position navigation and timing information for these systems. The uh, military alone is looking at 700 plus platforms plus large uh, military infrastructures like the ballistic missile defense system that must go through a modernization initiative in order to mitigate some of the vulnerabilities inherent in the GPS signal as well as deal with emerging threats. So, Scott, just let me, you know, I'm just going to, I want to visualize it for a second too. When I think about GPS, the immediate thing that comes to mind is I'm thinking about Afghanistan and you have drones and, you know, they're, you know, and they're targeting bad, bad actors or structures and uh, locations and also just surveillance as well. Is that, is that, you know, is that, it's you ubiquitous on the, on the, on the battlefield. Is that ubiquitous for the platform itself in terms of knowing where it is and where it needs to go to ubiquitous for any sensors or weapons, particularly precision-guided weapons that would be part of the platform. If they don't have 
position, positioning, navigation, and or timing that meets the performance requirements for the platform and the subsystem on the platform, they simply, simply cannot execute the operational mission. Right. So, and on the commercial side, Trey, like, you know, there's drones delivering packages this day, right, these days, right, for Amazon or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our phones, like, so I get directions and, you know, Google Maps and all that sort of stuff. So, it, so it, it's everywhere commercially as well. And airlines, everybody relies on, on GPS right now. So what are some of the differences or the challenges that the department faces that, you know, commercial users don't, don't face? Or what's well, you sort of unique about the defense sector? Sure. Well, so in, in leveraging the precision navigation and timing capabilities so fully that the United States has done so, we saw that going back all the way to Desert Storm. Um, it has created enormous battlefield advantages for us in terms of precision and lethality. Uh, but it also has created some critical dependencies that we have to concern ourselves with. So many threats have emerged um, that uh, can disrupt these signals, that can spoof these signals, that can jam these signals in a way that would really cause us problems on the battlefield. And so consequently, today, military leaders are, are planning to operate in, the, in a, a degraded PNT environment. And, and also they're uh, preparing... Uh, to be able to deal with this through new systems and upgrades to existing systems to be able to fight in this environment. So across the Depart- uh, Department of Defense, uh, the system program offices are modernizing and augmenting their GPS and GPS-enabled systems uh, and developing alternatives from which to source PNT capabilities in the event that that their GPS uh, signals are disrupted. So so when you, when you talk about mod- modernizing them, is it can... And then, Bill, I'll just I'll turn it to you sure. a little bit. Um, so, when you're modernizing, are, are we and you're creating greater resilience in the in the system? Is it is it redundancy? Is it new software? Is it combination? All those things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, what we're talking about here is really being able to mitigate the threat. So, as we have these systems out there, and we talked about them being ubiquitous everywhere, what we're finding is is that our adversaries are learning how to defeat our GPS systems. And so when we modernize them, what we're trying to do is overcome those threats, either better GPS systems or other technologies that can enable a better PNT solution. So, and what are some of those technologies? Yeah, so we're seeing things like improved uh, IMUs and there's some measurement units. We're also looking at chip scale atomic clocks, anti jam antennas, ones that can actually null out. A, a jammer or maybe even beam form close in on a, a satellite and block out a signal from an interferer. Those kind of things will really help our PNT systems overall. So, is that, and from your perspective, when you're doing that, are you, are these new technologies that get leveraged through open? you know, open systems architecture or, you know, we're not talking about proprietary systems. Is that one of the things that the department's trying to address? Well, I got to tell you, the department has been investing in a lot of these technologies for a long time. One of the things that they've been doing a good job at is perfecting these technologies. What they haven't been working on is developing these architectures and open standards to where we can plug and play these new technologies into our existing platforms. Many times these platforms are built around a uh, OEM's proprietary interfaces, and so it makes it hard for across the 700 platforms that we talked about to be able to bring in these new technologies easily. And, and so, Scott, when you when you're bringing in 
the new technologies does do, is are there corresponding decisions about you know we're not going to use a particular capability technology you know anymore or it, i mean in the you know as you evolve to new technologies or new capabilities are you is the department also making decisions about where to prioritize and, and not use certain capabilities? Does that make sense? It's, it's very scenario dependent for a particular platform type and even within a platform type, how that platform is used operationally. And this goes back to the technical trade analyses that need to be done for a particular platform. Um, you know, what is the best way to modernize the PNT functionality in order to provide the resilience and integrity that's needed. And the, the analysis needs to be done around what are the PNT sources to include GPS that ultimately should be included as part of an overall PNT solution. In many cases, it will eventually, I think, blend together PNT signals from multiple sources and um, that it, so that at any instant in time, the platform has the performance data it needs around PNT. Is the goal, Trey? Is the goal here for these systems that they all be able to talk to each other? Or you know, when you talk about open systems architecture and systems of systems, I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more in this next segment, and we're almost at end at the end of this segment. But, you know, I, again, I'm a layperson. I don't know nothing about technology. I'll be the first to admit that. So but when you're thinking about the overall t direction of this and using standards, is the goal, you know, it's, there's some systems, right, that aren't going to be talking to anybody else because of the nature of what they're doing. But mm -hmm. is the goal, the overarching goal, to try to connect these systems more? So I would say that there's two aspects to why you want to move to open architectures and standards. Right. One is... The, to your point, is that you get more ability to leverage and exploit as many systems as you can and the capabilities that they have. And so that is uh, that is set up by open architectures and standards. And and also critically important is the fact that uh, the world that we are in, are in today, the threats are evolving very quickly. And we have to be able to uh, match the speed of their developments. And so having open architectures and standards allows the program offices to move much faster right. and with much more flexibility and adaptability in meeting those threats. And I think that, that those two reasons are why you want to move to that type of architecture. So, And we're already up on the break, guys. When we come back, we'll be talking about you know the mission imperative around uh, positioning, navigation, and timing and, uh, you know, and where the department is going and what program offices are thinking about doing as they attack the systems of systems CO conundrum. My guests today are Trey Obering, Scott Wells, and Bill Nichols from Booz Allen Hamilton. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Today my guests are from Booz Allen, and we're talking about positioning, navigation, and timing systems. Trey Obering is... A executive vice president at Booz Allen. He was former, uh, uh, retired, excuse me, Air Force Lieutenant General and former director of the Missile Defense Agency. Scott Wells is vice president at Booz Allen, and he leads a firm-wide uh, effort with regard to Booz Allen's engineering and science business line. And also Bill Nichols is with us, and Bill is a principal who leads the firm's position, navigation, and timing functional team. And 
Guys, when we took the break, we were um, talking about a little bit about uh, mission, open systems architecture, and the role it plays. And um, you know, there's uh, you know, there's mission-driven requirements, there's business dri- business-driven requirements. And I'm turning over you to Scott just talk about. Let's take a little deeper dive in the in the you know mission imperative around PNT and um, and what you you guys are seeing. So we we talked earlier about um, the the need to modernize PNT across um, hundreds of of platforms and systems for the military, and their leadership in the Defense Department understands this this needs to be addressed at an enterprise level, not coming up with single PNT modernization solutions for each and every platform. And the Army, for example, has established a a PNT system of system architecture, which provides some guidance to um, the Army program offices for each of the systems and platforms on how they should approach PNT modernization, taking advantage of common solutions and common technology as much as possible. And that will reduce the timelines for doing the modernization, and it will do it in a, the most cost-effective way possible. For example, earlier Bill mentioned anti-jam PNT antennas as part of an overall solution. The antenna itself recognizes when the, um, the GPS signal is being jammed and has mechanisms to ignore the signal in that particular direction. The Army is taking a look at uh, a common approach to anti-jam antennas for all of their their platforms, rather than each system program office coming up with their own anti-jam antenna solutions. So looking at this at an enterprise level and understanding the the system of systems interconnectivity of all of these platforms uh, further complicates uh, the PNT modernization initiative. If you if you gave the job to a particular OEM of a platform of coming up with just a, a PNT modernization solution for that platform. In the end, uh, in addition to probably not doing it in the most cost-effective way possible, you wouldn't be taking a look at the overall enterprise-level implications of these various solutions. All right. So, um, when you, Trey, when when we, you know, when I, I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to wrap my head around it in a certain sense because the hundreds of systems just that you talked about with that's that Scott talked about with regard to the Army. I'm thinking about logistics, you know, the, you know, the warfighter on the battlefield themselves, like, you know, the, you know, the tanks and whatever armored that supports them, you know, the drones overhead that have to be able to communicate. And then even little drones that, you know, those foot long drones that people that have to go over the hill and see what's going on, all that stuff has to be uh, tied together. And you talk about op- open systems standards approach. I, how does I have a couple questions? So, is it does it, is the imperative there too that it has to be a modular approach? And my second question is, when you go to open systems and you try to create you know an enterprise wide approach, does that increase risk or decrease risk, or how do you assess risk? Well, well, first of all, the uh, if you go to an enterprise view, which you, which you have to, yeah, um, you should yes. be able to mitigate risk in a, a much more robust okay. way because, again, you can take advantage of a lot of different information based on these open standards and protocols and standards that you would not have access to otherwise. And the ability to move very quickly, I'd like to emphasize, because 
again, uh, the threat is not going to remain static. It's going to continue to evolve and it's going to continue to find out new ways to try to attack those architectures. We have to have the ability to respond as well, which means that the program officers themselves need to be empowered. They need to be able to move quickly and they need to be able to understand the direction that the department is headed, which is why it's so important for the architectures to be defined uh, at the highest level and then let the program officers uh, uh, move as quickly as they can to meet those. So it's open systems and modular approach. They they kind of have to go together. Do you, is that fair to say? It, it, it is. That's that's a, that's a, a one way to look at it is to right. be able to have both of those uh, those uh, avenues to be able to pursue and exploit, and that's what allow us to move much more quickly in our acquisition system. Right. So, Bill, um, you know, I got a couple questions for you. For first one, back to the jamming capability. Mm -hmm. So, if we take a common approach to that, I mean, I understand that. So, as does it have to be redundancy built into that? I mean, is there? A, I mean, if you do it one way and they and your up your uh, up your enemy figures out the way you're jamming and can overcome it, I mean, is that an iterative process or is it? Do you have you know uh, redundancy or further resilience and other methodologies to? You know, it's not like one size fits all from that. I'm I'm trying to get yeah, that yeah. as a layperson. Now let, let me um, help you out here. So please do. Okay, <laughs> very good. So, um, like we were talking about before, what, we've gone in with one solution for PNT for many, many years for the past twenty years with GPS. It's been yeah. phenomenal. It is the gold standard. It has been tremendous, and it's proliferated everything, not only on the DoD side but also on the commercial side. There's over three billion users estimated around the world of this thing. It's phenomenal. The, the downside to it is that it's a low power, a very low signal coming from space, so it's easily to jam. And so when you talk about redundancy, uh, really a better term is resiliency. And what okay. we're doing is we're adding other technologies to augment or to create alternatives to GPS. So when GPS is interfered or jammed, you have other mechanisms to figure out where you are, where you need to go, and what time it is. And so that's what, we, what we're really focusing on here. And, you know, GPS, when we talk about open systems, GPS has already for the past 20 years have developed these standards for GPS, but we really haven't moved into developing these open standards for these other technologies. It could be celestial navigation, it could be the ELORAN, RFSS, it could be other GNSS systems, global navigation satellite systems. There's a whole, there's well over 10 different technologies that could be added to our platforms to help build that resilience, not necessarily redundancy, but we'll call it resilience, that augment um, and complement, you know, the GPS, right. which is the gold standard. Right. So, hey, Bill, so one of those, um, I guess, uh, signals that I've heard of is the Air Force's M-code? Yes. What is that? Yeah, so M-code is a modernized code. And what this is really helping, it, it is giving us a little more power, and we already have 19 satellites on orbit today that have the ability to broadcast M-code. <clears throat> uh, what we're needing is the user equipment on the ground to receive it. Now, what M-code is going to be able to do over the previous GPS military signals is provide us more anti-spoofing capability and a little bit more anti-jam. Only anti-jam in the sense that it gives us a little more power. The anti-spoofing aspect is another thing we didn't talk a lot about, but that's really where the enemy is faking us out on where we right. think we are. Right, or where, it, yeah, 
where where we think we are. Right? Exactly. Okay. okay. So people don't run into each other or whatever, right? Um, well, can you t- talk a little bit more? We only have about a minute, so I guess we'll start this um, this conversation because we talked a lot about open uh, open systems architecture, um, and you've talked about you guys have talked about some of the capabilities and technologies and things around that. So, how far is the progress gone in open systems architecture um, along the? Yeah, uh, good question, Roger. You know, um, on a GPS side, like I mentioned, you know, there are standards that are out there that are actually uh, publicly available, particularly on the commercial side. But on these other ones, as I was mentioning, we really aren't where we need to be yet. Turns out that um, the Department of Defense has just kicked it off probably within the last six months, uh, a study to look at these open architectures for these other PNT technologies. And this is really where you're going to get that huge leverage for the program offices. So now as the Department of Defense starts delegating responsibilities down to program offices, one of the things that they need to do is make sure that these program offices don't go off on their own, all 700 different platforms doing their own thing. They really need to help them, guiding them with these open architectures. Like I said, we just kicked off a study recently. We're probably a couple years away uh, from really getting some governance and some right. policy to say this is the open standard. And Bill, when we come back from the break, we'll talk some more about the management challenge and the governance. My guests today are from, Boo, are from Booz Allen, the, Trey Obring, Scott Wells, and Bill Nichols, and we're talking about positioning, navigation, and timing, PNT, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are Trey Obring, a executive vice president at Booz Allen. Uh, Trey uh, was a retired Air Force general and former director of uh, Missile Defense Agency. Scott Wells is a vice president at Booz Allen. Scott currently is in a firm-wide leadership role in Booz Booz Allen's engineering and science business line. And Bill Nichols is a principal who leads the firm's position, navigation, and timing functional team. And when we took the break, Bill was talking about um, the governance structure and you know using open standards and uh, systems of systems and the complexity are all around all that. And Trey, I thought it'd be great, um, given your background, to talk a little bit about the you know the management and leadership challenges of trying to get uh, all these moving parts to move you know, with a unity of effort to get to the goal of you know you know you know a comprehensive sort of strategy and implementation for uh, positioning, navigation, and timing. Uh, Well, thank you. So one of the lessons that I've learned in my career is that when you have a very complex challenge or you're trying to develop a very complex system of systems, uh, one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure that you uh, have streamlined your your oversight and that you have uh, simplified it and empowered it. And that's what really allows you to manage these very complex systems. So, for example, uh, you want to make sure that that uh, in the oversight boards that are set up, that you have decision makers that are there, and and not not just uh, folks that are there to attend. You have to be making decisions at these uh, at these various uh, boards, and typically you want right. to limit the number of those that have oversight responsibilities, such that you're actually being able to get decisions quickly and move quickly. And I think that's very very critical in being able to to stay up with the threats that we have in today's environment. And is the is the department that are sort of move for this in this particular area? Are they moving in this in that direction, sort of from a 
management perspective. I think so. In fact, some of the um, some of the things that that I see that are coming out now in terms of both a move toward uh, open system architectures and and more uh, standards approach, as well as delegation of authority and responsibilities in many of these cases. And uh, there was an instance just recently where the Secretary of the Air Force, uh, Heather Wilson, at the Reagan Defense Forum, outlined the fact that the Air Force, for example, is actively delegating more and more responsibility to their system program offices and and pushing and empowering. Uh, the folks that are working uh, across the board, which I think is very encouraging. Right. Well, you know, with uh, the same time, you as a leader, as uh, when you empower, you know, the workforce or the organization to do something, uh, you just get your thoughts. Is the imperative also, you know, sort of backing them up? Like you're going to take risks, right? And sometimes you fail, sometimes you succeed. You know, in our culture in D.C., it's like with the oversight community, it's like, you know, you're always second guessing people. You're always, you know, what ifing people and, but to, to have their back, I think is, is something important. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, um, a couple of years ago, I was asked to lead a national Academy study, uh, by the air force on uh, how they could better, uh, manage their technical baselines or own their technical baselines. And you, you don't think about this in terms of tech data, that type of thing. We're talking about having a government team that is capable of understanding the trades that are being made on their programs and are actively involved in that and understanding the uh, the requirements and how they are flowing all the way through the designs into the, into the specifications for the particular systems. And a, as part of that study, um, what we discovered is that there is a very risk-averse environment uh, yeah. across the entire department. Hey, you're talking to a lawyer here, <laughs> Trey, so I know, what you're, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and, and that has evolved over time. It, it, and it, there were a lot of factors that fed into that, going all the way back to uh, a policy called Total Systems Performance Responsibility that was instituted back in the 90s, for example. Uh, but we've got to get away from that. We've got to get more into a prudent risk-taking environment in which they are taking more risk and that we don't punish failures uh, that we we learn from them and that we encourage people to do this because that's the only way we're going to be able to tackle some of these very, very tough challenges in the timelines that we need. All right. So, and I want to sort of turn to Bill just real quickly to talk about, you know, when you're talking about that implementation, that guidance, and you have DOD program office is either serving as integrators or hiring integrators to support them or companies like Booz Allen to support them. Can you talk about what that means and, you know, from a program office, from a competitive perspective for, you know, access to technologies? Yeah, sure. So the, the current operating model right now is as a new requirement comes up, you know, they would end up um, developing the high level requirements at a very high level and then giving them to an OEM, an original equipment manufacturer, to go implement that. And, and that original equipment manufacturer would be doing all those trades. They would be developing the technical baseline and they would be determining it. What we're talking about here is taking some of that top level, what traditionally would have been at the OEM level, moving it into the program office and getting some of that capability of not only understanding the top level requirements, being able to flow those down to subsystems, being able to uh, do the trades that Trey was talking about, develop the architectures, and as well as own those architectures and open systems to where as the um, as the uh, what you're trying to do is create more of a, uh, a smart buyer on the government side by having that capability of understanding what the real 
technical issues are, what the technologies are, what those trades are. And you, as a government organization, are now making the trades versus the OEM, and you're making them with a long-term vision where, you know, I may need to be swapping out this celestial navigation system in another 10, 15 years with a newer and a smaller and a better system. And so I'm going to create this open architecture. I'm going to own that interface and I'm going to compete it downstream rather than giving the overall assignment to that prime integrator. And so that's what's going on here with this new model. So, and so Scott, when, when you think about that approach to, um, you know, to open architecture to program management um, is, you know, I, I mean, my perception, I want to just get your thought. Does that, is it, is, is the department trying to create, you know, a frame, they're trying to create a framework rights where they have greater, uh, yeah, more rapid access to new capabilities or technologies that if you've got open systems, you can plug it in and, um, and move forward with uh, providing the capability? Exactly. So, you know, the characteristics here of the open architecture are you are, as much as you can, standardizing the definition of the functionality as well as the interfaces for that functionality. So industry is incentivized to come forward with innovative solutions that comply with the architecture. And so from the government's perspective, they will, they will benefit from that incentive to industry um, with providers and vendors coming forward with potential solutions to meet the P&T modernization uh, needs of each individual platform. Right. And Trey, is the key to that, uh, you know, the technical baseline and the department's, you know, the you know, ownership of that, I guess, for lack of a better term, is that? It is. And in fact, it is, uh, uh, the, it's the government's responsibility to understand uh, what the requirements are for these programs uh, that are that they're getting from the warfighter right. from the users, and also to understand uh, what trades can be made to meet those requirements in the most effective and and cost efficient uh, manner. Uh, and that government team is not just organic government; it can include the the FFRDCs, right. uh, the the uh, national laboratories, uh, services contractors like ourselves, to be able to build a very technically competent team to be able to understand. Uh, that development. And there's a trend that that occurred over the last several years that needs to be reversed, frankly, in the department to to further enable this. And that is, over time, the department in a much broader front began to adopt uh, lowest price, technically acceptable contracting strategies. And that has proven uh, to decimate a government team where you're you're not getting the technical talent that you right. need to understand those trades and to help the government understand those trades. And I'm talking about services contracts. Right. And I think that we're beginning to see that tide turn, but that really does need to need to be reversed in order for the, the, the government team to be uh, capable of, of owning its tech baseline. Right. Well, that's, you know, you get what you pay for, right? Exactly. Right? And mm-hmm. you're, you're dumbing down the, the capability. You're, du- you're you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're dumbing down the capabilities that you're you're, exactly. you're paying for, right? Exactly. Bill, you had one more yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I had one more point that uh, I wanted to also emphasize is that you know it may be counterintuitive, but when you move to these open architectures, you're actually increasing competition. The OEMs end up uh, there's many more there's a much broader field available to go and play in that game, and uh, and so we're seeing you know is actually kind of I was talking that one company may have maybe twenty percent work share in an area, but he's locked out of the other 80% because of some proprietary systems, right? right. So now right. you've opened up that 80% to that one competitor. 
And then you also have a lot of small Maybe businesses. Maybe vice versa too, perhaps. Could be uh, vice versa uh, too. But you're also opening up uh, to a lot of small players and yeah. a lot of new innovative players that um, you know may have been locked out or one reason or another in the past. Right. So, and on that, Scott, save your thought. We have to go to the break. <laughs> we got a hard break here. We got one more segment. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of uh, positioning, navigation, and timing with Trey Obering, Scott Wells, and Bill Nichols from Booz Allen Hamilton. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today we're talking with Trey Obering, Scott Wells, and Bill Nichols from Booz Allen. We're talking about positioning, navigation, and timing. And I have to concentrate, guys, every time I say that because I want to make sure I get it right. Because <laughs> um, I have a tendency to you know mix up the words. Like you know, my internal GPS is not so great. <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, that was corny. I know. Um, so Scott, uh, you know, I wanted to start with you. This is the last segment, but you know, we talked a little bit about the business imperative of modernizing and resilience in the in the GPS and the and the positioning, navigation, and timing. See, I there, I just did it. Um, um, but and I know you wanted to um, talk a little bit about the investment in on the government side and the importance of that of that investment and what the return can be. Right. So, you know, we've talked about two aspects of an approach for the government to take in P&T modernization. One is to adopt open architectures and um, get the benefit of increased competition for the solutions that vendors are going to bring. The other part of it is the government program offices and the government workforce um, having the capabilities that they need in order to do that job, to define the open architectures and ultimately the implementation of the solutions. So it's really a change in the way that the government invests its resources as opposed to giving that job to an OEM of defining the architectures and the interfaces, that they're pulling that back into the government with the right workforce made up from government employees, the FFRDCs and whatever other resources they need in order to define Companies and manage like the technical Allen baseline, as well, right? Correct. Right. So, and that you know, to, I mean, on the break we talked a little bit about this, so I'll bring it up in the and during the segment. You know, that approach it seems to me, just in my experience over the last three decades dealing with the government, makes a lot of sense because it provides more flexibility to the manager to manage their program to set that and get that unity of effort. Trey, thoughts on that? It, it does. And in fact, uh, one of the things when I was uh, at the Missile Defense Agency that I learned is that you have to be able to jump quickly on technical risk up front. If you don't and you wait till downstream, that that can be very, very expensive. And so it's really interesting that um, one of the approaches that we adopted there was we would, we would basically uh, – uh, decompose the requirements for our, our, our systems and understand, okay, what were the technical bumps, what were the technical walls, and what were the technical miracles that had to occur in order to satisfy the requirements. And then we focused uh, in putting the government team and the contractor team on those uh, on those areas first so that we didn't uh, have to pay for an entire standing army while we're trying to solve a technical challenge up front and early in the program because our history is is uh, is uh, uh, is populated with many examples of where that has occurred. So, in having the government invest in a competent team up front that can recognize these technical cap- uh, technical challenges and and work to understand how to resolve those early can pay back dividends downstream and actually save a lot of money in these programs. Right. 
And from a, and I'm going to turn it to to acquisition. Just when the government sort of has control of that baseline, what does it mean from uh, an acquisition process? It means uh, from that, your perspective, it means that they are uh, able to make the right trades and, and that have to be made as you go through the system engineering process for these programs. It lets them uh, better understand what the risks are and what the where the resources need, need to be applied as the OEMs begin to develop the systems to meet the requirements. And so it gives them much better insight into how the programs need to be executed, which is invaluable in saving money downstream. So how, you know, Bill, how difficult is this a challenge for the program offices to uh, sort of act act in this role, um, you know, leading, sort of integrating and pulling together these teams? Yeah, so it's definitely easier said than done. You know, right now they have a a core team of uh, civilians and FFRDCs and maybe some labs to reach out, but it's really not going to be enough of a capability. Uh, what they're going to need to do is, as Scott mentioned, you know, invest more into building up that program office. They're going to need to be looking for teams that have skills in, uh, particularly in this case, uh, still M-code and GPS, because that's always going to be the foundation of your P&T system. But you're also going to need to know those build a team that understands all the different technologies and options. You're also going to need someone that understands the P&T architectures, the open architectures that the Department of Defense is going to be flowing down to each of these 700 different platforms. You need some talent in there to understand how to model and simulate these new systems, potentially even prototype some of these new systems to see how well they work in the new platforms, do some tests and evaluation, maybe even a little bit of a, software development to uh, maybe do some glueware in between various systems to make them work. Uh, so you're going to need to, they're going to need to upgrade, I'll say, their program offices to add a lot of these capabilities that they may not have done in the past. And one of those strategies would be, uh, you know, go into the private sector and hiring capability, like from Booz Allen Hamilton, you know, from that perspective, um, Trey, can you give us some thoughts on you know, how? Just lay it out. How do how do you guys help help folks? You know, deliver from a program office perspective when you see them trying to integrate to develop these baselines to go to open systems modular approach. Well, first of all, uh, Booz Allen uh, with over twenty three thousand employees, and we have disciplines across the entire spectrum, uh, and especially from the technical piece, we've we've moved very dramatically over the last decade into uh, high-end and high-end high, uh, high -end engineering skills, uh, high-end technical skills in the firm. And uh, we can reach down and pull across the entire firm to be able to support programs. And we do that very easily because we are a partnership and we collaborate across the entire business uh, areas. And so uh, we have the ability to bring that kind of talent to the, to the government, to the program offices, to help them in, in meeting their toughest challenges. Right, Scott? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've done over the past couple of years is forecast in the area of P&T, what talent do we need in these discipline areas and where can we invest in hiring that talent and bringing it in and developing the talent that we have through um, IR&D type projects so that we have the expertise that can be helpful to the government program offices as they take on these challenges. Right. And Bill, as part of that, you know, obviously you got to understand – to hire the talent that you need, you have to understand where the technologies are heading. 
right? What's over the horizon in terms of potential capabilities that that's absolutely true. You know, what, what the department has done is they've actually got two roadmaps going. They got a P&T roadmap, uh, I'll say S&T, Science and Technology yep. Roadmap, but they also have a fielding roadmap. Turns out we're involved in uh, the fielding roadmap and we have a good understanding of this S&T roadmap. And so the combination of those two really going to help. What the, is a fielding roadmap? I'm sorry. A field, so a fielding roadmap is when do each of those 700 platforms plan on upgrading okay. with M-Code, mm-hmm. for instance? So it mm-hmm. turns out that the Department of Defense has put out a mandate that everyone buying a new GPS receiver must have M-Code-capable receivers. Right. And uh, and so everyone's in the process of at least upgrading with M-Code. Now, they're also recognizing, as I mentioned earlier, that you're still a little vulnerable to jamming. And so you're going to want to add some other technologies to mitigate those jamming threats. And so as they do that, that fielding roadmap lets you know who's doing what when. When is the B2 getting upgraded? You know, when is the JLTV getting upgraded? Things like that. Sure. Um, Trey, we've got, got about 40 seconds left. So I, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, just, you know, where do you see um, PNT heading and from a, the department's perspective over the next couple of years? Well, I think that um, that uh, both Bill and Scott have covered it pretty well this morning. I think that first of all, it's an exciting time because I do I do see uh, both coming from the Hill policy uh, that's coming out in, in legislation that talks about uh, moving to m- uh, more modular and open architectures. Uh, I see uh, from some of the discussions uh, with the senior leaders in the department this idea of empowering and 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 delegating more responsibilities and authorities and focusing the governance on where they should be focused, which is on the architectural constructs and what are the standards in defining what those uh, what those uh, those overarching environments should be. So I think that that actually we're at a very exciting time, and I believe that. Uh, we're finally seeing a lot of these things begin to move in the right direction so that we can stay up with the threats, not only in this area, but in many others across the spectrum. And we've got to be right. able to adapt to this new environment so that we can move qu- much more quickly and much more flexibly than we've done in the past. Right. I want to thank my guests today, Trey Obring, Scott Wells, and Bill Nichols from Booz Allen Hamilton. We've been talking about PNT, Positioning, Navigation, and Timing. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.